Adventures of Donald McQueen Bibliographer Chapter 7 Death at the Duodecimo Club Professor Donald McQueen of Timor Mortis College, Oxford. I am a bibliographer, and these are my adventures. Last night I arrived at my London club, the Duodecimo, and attempted to use the ear trumpet, trumpet of death to delve into the mysterious history of the Codex Asinorum, but with no success at all. I had determined to try again the next day, but at breakfast I was distracted by the news that two of my fellow bibliographers Two of the five who had arrived with me on the previous evening had been involved in an incident. A fatal incident. It seemed that Michael Ribright had expired during the night of a conniption, a fatal one, and had done so in the bed of Daniela Oz, the mistress of the long sextodecimo, known as the Devil's Format. She had apparently tried to drag his body back to his own room, but Ribright is a big man, a veritable ox, and Daniela is slight, though wily and athletic, and had struggled to achieve the task, finally being discovered in mid-drag in the red-carpeted corridor of the fourth floor by none other than Joanna Lumley, who was herself some considerable distance from her assigned quarters with no due cause. Being found in possession of the half-dressed corpse of the President of the Bibliographical Society would have reduced some members to gibbering wrecks. Not so Daniela. She gave Lumley a terse and truthful account of what had befallen, and appealed to the amateur's sisterly feelings to help her complete her task of deflecting the potential scandal represented by the huge and lifeless form she was attempting to replace in its bed. But Joanna was having none of it, and called the night porter, who summoned an ambulance and the police. There was nothing untoward, it seems, in Ribright's death. Any man or woman of mature years might easily, and happily, have expired in Daniela's embraces, but the news was out, and the aforementioned scandal could not now be diverted. This news interested me a good deal, and stirred a mixture of joy and sorrow in my breast. I was sorry indeed to learn of Ribright's passing. He was a learned fellow, known for his gentle chairmanship of bibliographical society meetings, at which he rarely invoked Rule 4B, and only once, to my knowledge, employed the society's taser. I pitied his wife, too, and seven perfectly formed children, who would all no doubt be distressed by the manner of his passing and his final association with Daniela Oz and the long sextodecimo. Her reputation, on the other hand, would no doubt be much enhanced by the incident. I felt a little joy, too, for a reason the listener may perhaps guess. The passing of Ribright proved that death was still at work in the world. I had begun to wonder whether my possession of his ear-trumpet might have rendered him impotent, wandering the twilight without any means of finding and claiming those who were due his mercies. In short, I wondered if I had accidentally defeated death. When this idea occurred to me, I suffered an instant of joy. What could be more natural? No more death. But it took only a second or two of thought to understand the implications of such a situation. A world without death would be a terrible world indeed. Leaving aside the overcrowding of the planet, which would quickly become unbearable, indeed unthinkable, how would man, without death, perceive and conduct himself? How could immortal men and women fail to become either monsters or lunatics? What would men crave in such a world but the only thing they could not have? Release from that world. 
but Ribright's passing proved that my worries had been vain. Death was still at large and conducting his business as usual. Perhaps he had a spare ear-trumpet. After breakfast I returned to my suite refreshed, and lay down upon the four-poster to try again to plumb the mystery of the Codex Asinorum by means of the ear-trumpet. I inserted it and pondered hard upon the problem. But I failed once more, and heard instead the sounds of oppressed children and oppressive schoolmasters, and realized I was listening to some educational establishment. Soon I recognized my own dear school, Witterings in Hampshire, and I must have been hearing word of times to come, for in my ear I heard the voices of girls as well as of boys, and some of them sounded quite common. Now, now, quieten down, please, please, settle down. That's better, thank you. Now, I have a rather unhappy announcement, I'm afraid. This evening's senior girls' choir has been cancelled because, sadly, I have lost my penis. What was that, sir? I said I have lost my penis. Really? Oh, yes. How did that happen then, sir? Well, yesterday evening I was having a bit of a practice with my penis... When I looked down, and I kid you not, my penis had turned green. Green? What did you do? I did not hesitate. I took the little fellow to the hospital and left him there for the doctors to work their magic upon. You left your penis in the hospital? I certainly did. That's why there'll be no senior girls' choir this evening. Wait a minute, sir. Are you talking about Mr. Kincaid who plays the piano? Aye, of course. You're not talking about your penis? Yes, I am. Mr. Kincaid is my penis. Has there been some kind of a misunderstanding here? No, no, no I don't think so. No, no misunderstandings. This was hopeless. I was almost as far from Mainz in the mid-15th century as it was possible to be. I determined to concentrate and try again. But although I managed to go a little further back in time, I was hardly nearer my target and found myself listening again to that remarkable drama, The Venus Probe. It was, of course, a television drama, and its visual aspects were highly significant. Its setting of a starship with its wobbly walls and many flashing lights, its crew in their brightly coloured uniforms, the men in tight-fitting jerkins and flares, and the women in crop tops and miniskirts and its many hilarious aliens with their rubbery faces and slime and strangely similar voices. The appearance of the weapons, too, was of much significance in the design of the series, with guns and cannons of all shapes and sizes, of shining metal, and with many flanges and protuberances of uncertain purpose. I could see all of this in my mind's eye as I heard the soundtrack of the next episode, and yet this world of sound alone worked surprisingly well to convey the drama. This is the log of the starship Venus, Captain Jonathan T. Hansom in command. The year is 2020, and on a mission to probe the second planet of our solar system, 
the most well-equipped and advanced starship of His Majesty's Royal Astro Navy, was blown clear across the galaxy by a quantum explosion on the planet's red-hot surface. Travelling at a hundred times the speed of light, we managed at last to apply the handbrake and found ourselves in deep space. With no maps to guide us and no way to return home or even an inkling of where home now was, we had no choice but to drive on past psychedelically coloured planets and strange glowing nebulae, armed only with the finest crew in the Astro Navy and a battery of powerful and terrifying futuristic weapons. This is the Venus Probe. Captain Handsome's Space Journal, Astrodate 2011.2 Having learned that Chief Engineer Green has been replaced with a robot, we were troubled by a band of contradictons, a belligerent species from the planet Nope, who materialised in the briefing room and were tricked by Commander Flaflaff into revealing that Green had been abducted and was being stored in a cupboard in a spaceship parked on the backside of a nearby moon. However, after blazing the contradictons into oblivion, Flaflaff pointed out that the species had not the technology to replace a fat Scotsman with a robot. So we approached the chameleon-like alien ship and discovered that it had a back door, and in that back door was a cat flap. The brave pussycat Dogrel volunteered to enter the alien craft and has now been inside the ship for eight hours, and I am beginning to feel uneasy. Flaflaff has been monitoring movements within the spaceship with our scanners, which can penetrate the ship's liquid hull, albeit with difficulty. He has picked up numerous alien life forms and a sentient vegetable, all milling about inside the ship, but the one human form, presumably green, and the only other mammal, presumably dogrel, have not changed their positions for the past six hours. I am beginning to fear that the valorous pussycat has, like green, been captured and is now held in some terrible space dungeon. I must consult with the finest minds aboard the Venus and determine our next move. Captain, I'm sorry to intrude. Ah, Hopper, I was just recording my space journal. 
I know this is a worrying time for you, Captain. When is it not a worrying time? Ah, the heavy crown of the starship, Captain. I must speak to you about the crew, and one crew member in particular. Nurse Lovely and I have been monitoring their health ever since we were thrown into deep space by that freak quantum explosion. And, overall, the crew members are coping well with the stresses of conflict with alien species and the terrible dialogue and sets. They are, after all, the finest crew in His Majesty's Astro Navy. Apart from the few crewmen we have lost in battles with our enemies, notably the Clangers, the Clingers, the Morons, the Borons, the Rising Inflectors, do you remember them? The Lobelians, the Metalloids, the Adenoids, the Taxman, the Soup Dragon, the Poop Dragon, which attacked our poop deck, the Hoop Dragon, which was peaceful but accidentally killed Expendable Wilkins during a game of croquet, the Croup Dragon, which was grumpy because of its persistent cough, the Toop Dragon, which grew furious when we laughed at its wig, and of course the overpowerful Garlics. Apart from those few dead, the crew is surviving well in space, but I am afraid their health is beginning to suffer now due to the poor diet we have been able to offer them over the past six months. Before we go any further, Hopper, what is that accent? Is it supposed to be Chinese? You might well think so, Captain, for my mother was Chinese, though my father was English. But they were busy doctors in Hong Kong, and I was brought up by a succession of lovable nannies. The first I remember was Nanny Friedrichsdottir, who was Icelandic. Then there was Nanny Finnegan, who was born in the beautiful city of Cork in Ireland. Then there was Nanny Umbongo, who was, naturally enough, from the Congo. Then there was Nanny MacDougall, who was from Pancake Day Island. Pancake Day Island? I have never heard of that. Oh, yes, sir. You may know that Captain Minos discovered Christmas Island in the middle of the Indian Ocean on Christmas Day in 1643. Well, he sailed on to the west, and the next day found Boxing Day Island. And then a few days later, New Year's Eve Island, followed by Circumcision Island. He sailed out into the Pacific and found Epiphany Island, Valentine's Day Island, and then the beautiful Pancake Day Island. After that, he sailed on for seven weeks without finding any land, a veritable Lent of island naming, until he came at last to Easter Island, where he regrettably died of a surfeit of Christmas pudding which he had been eating for the past three months. I see. Do go on. Well, after Nanny McDougall, there was only one more, perhaps the greatest influence upon my early life, Nanny Fififififlifi, who was, like Flaflaf, a Claudian from the planet Garamond 12. So, you see, my accent is not so much Chinese as a blend of Chinese, Icelandic, Eilish, Congolese, Pancake Day Islandish, and Claudian. So, no one could possibly think it a racist stereotype. Well, thank you for explaining that. To return to your point about the poor diet of the crew, we still have freezers full of nutritious and delicious side dishes, thanks to our hard-won victory over the races of the vegetable planet. But we lack meat, Captain. Scientists tell us that men cannot live without meat, and star sailors in particular need their flesh to be strong and brave in the face of space. All we have, since our original supplies ran out, is frozen dodo. You will remember how, in episode 11, when we were in dire need of sustenance, we came upon the planet Dodomond, inhabited for some reason 
by descendants of the extinct Arth Dodo. They had evolved somewhat, having developed language and hands in addition to their wings, and they went about in capes and top hats, but they were still essentially game birds, and so we killed half their population. Only half? We are not monsters, and we froze their bodies. Their flesh will last us for two years, more if we lose further expendables, but it will be a monotonous diet. Ship's cook Fleeman is, I know, very tired of thinking of new ways to serve Dodo. Ah, Freeman, that most talented of chefs. In the galley, they say, Freeman is a veritable demon. His perfectionism is extreme, and the crewmen hold him in the highest esteem, and his sauces are a dream, and of his dishes, his Dodo casserole would seem to be the cream. Once a terrestrial navy cook, now when I look at Freeman, I think, heavenly seaman. Yes, quite. But despite all that, Dodos, though tasty, provide poor meat, containing little iron or radium, the elements a man needs to be strong and virile. Have we no radium supplements? No iron tablets? All exhausted, as our crew must soon be. It is a serious problem, Chopper. We must go a-hunting and see if we cannot bag a space ox or a Lygian mega-piglet or two. Very good, Captain. But I mentioned that there was one member of the crew whose health is of particular concern to me. Who could that be? Is it third mate Carter? I know he's a bit of a tartar, and for promotion a non-starter. He's a gambler who once won Nurse Lovely's garter in a game of four-dimensional darts. He's an accomplished darter, which may come in handy if, one day in our adventures, someone has to throw something small and sharp with great accuracy. A deeply religious man, he is rumoured to have suffered in his youth from stigmata, but these days it is to indigestion that he's a martyr and his flatulence is such that the crew call him not Carter, but, well, you know as well as I do, his ability to fart the Moonlight Sonata. Perhaps his problems could be due in part to our dodo-heavy diet. Or could you be referring to Midshipman Handy? With his sandy hair and dandy air, he's the darling of the ladies of the Starship Venus, though perhaps a little too fond of Brandy and Shandy and Candy, three of the altos in the ship's choir. I have long suspected his bonhomie and expansive interest in the fair sex to be a mask for profound melancholy. Is it perhaps the dandy handy who concerns you? Or could it be second mate Bert Nifter, by far the most obvious shirt? Let me stop you there, Captain. I speak of none of these star sailors. Who, then? A fellow well-known and loved among the crew, one Jonathan T. Handsome. You are driving yourself too hard, Captain. The weight of command is telling on you, and I grow concerned for your physical and mental well-being. Fiddle-faddle, Chopper. I am as strong and as wise as ever. Do not delude yourself, Captain. You are mortal and fabable, as are we all, and must take some rest for your own good and for the sake of the starship Venus. Rest, Chopper. I will rest, but it will have to wait until we have solved our present problem. Witches? No, not witches. Not this time. As yet, only the officers know that Chief Engineer Green has been replaced with a very lifelike robot. Ah, that explains why you asked me to give him a complete medical, and why he complied without swearing once. And then, afterwards, he invited me to a game of three-dimensional Ludo, which he lost with a good grace. I did wonder why he was behaving so oddly, while being apparently in perfect health. The real Green, with all his highland roughness and oaths, is imprisoned in a cupboard in a curious spaceship parked upon the moon around which we are in orbit, and brave Doggerel has gone on a solo mission to find out where and under what conditions he is being held. 
but it is now more than eight hours since he went through that alien cat flap, and I am beginning to feel uneasy. Cat flap, you say? Then we are powerless to follow him. Unless... I wonder... I happen to know that Green was working on a special invention to please Dogwell, or rather Rear Admiral Devonish. Have you heard of this, sir? No, I don't think so. It must have been a secret special invention. Oh, it was. Now, as you know, Dogral is a tomcat, and he is... intact. He has desires, powerful hungers, which he can at present only satiate upon the furry cushions in the recreation lounge on B-Deck. Ooh, I wondered why those cushions were sticky. Wow, Green has been working on a solution in the form of a robotic bride for Dogral, an electromechanical lady cat, which he can lavish his affection upon in a satisfying and hygienic manner. This robot mate is called Queenie, and she is almost perfected. I am sure that Fafflaff, with his Claudian engineering skills, could quickly complete the mechanism and control the robot with wireless waves, guiding it into the alien ship to find out what has happened to Green and Dogroll. What a splendid plan! Do you go down to the engineering department at the double to Green's workshop, and I will send Fluff to meet you there to complete work on the Lady Cat as quickly as possible. Aye, aye, Captain. Will Hopper and Fluff be able to complete and control Queenie Doggirl's electromechanical bride? Will they be able to penetrate the alien ship with her help and both locate and rescue both Doggirl and Green? Will the cushions in the recreation lounge on B-Deck ever be usable again? Join me, Captain Handsome, to find out in next week's exciting episode of The Venus Probe. I remembered something of that episode of The Venus Probe from 50 years ago when I first saw it as a student, but I had quite forgotten that Dogrel's mechanical mate was called Queenie, which is, of course, my name. It gave me much pleasure to hear all that again, and to learn of Queenie. I will tell my Dogrel all about it when I return to Oxford. In Latin, of course, now that I know that to be the lingua franca of the feline races. He will be, I am sure, as amused as any cat can be, by the coincidence of names. On the television screen of my memory, I saw the credits passing as I heard the closing theme music, the names of the famous actors who played the leading characters, and the often still more famous star who was the villain or hero of that particular episode. Each name set in massive sans-serif characters that filled the screen. Richard Stonecock as Captain Handsome, Casimir Hannigan as Commander Flufflaff, Bella Botting as both wireless Mistress Lovely and her twin sister Nurse Lovely, Mackenzie Fulbright as Chief Engineer Green, Ginger Wong as Dr. Hopper, and of course, Mr. Perkins as Dogrel the Cat. He was, I should think, the most famous cat actor of his age, and when he died around 1980, Mr. Perkins was stuffed and put on display at the British Museum. His remains are a holy relic to science fiction-loving pilgrims of all nations. removed the instrument from my lug hole and glanced at my watch. 
I was astonished to find that more than three hours had elapsed, while I had been, frankly, entertained, but hardly informed, by the ear-trumpet of death. It was time for lunch, and I repaired again to the oak-panelled dining-hall of the Duodecimo Club. I took a table in one corner, hoping that no one would bother me while I dined. The menu, specially printed by the finest letterpress printer of our age, the Dormant Weasels Press, appeared in a new edition every day, but members were forbidden to remove copies for their own collections until midnight, when a small band of drunken bibliographers always raided the dining hall and sometimes fought over the pristine copies. I picked up the beautifully designed, imposed and impressed object and read that day's luncheon specials. The food was, naturally enough, bibliographically themed. That day there was a vegetarian option, spaghetti seriatim, one continuous piece of spaghetti, 17 metres long, in a delicious secondary sauce. Then there was reversed calf, which was veal, which had been cooked backwards. Stereotripes, two identical pieces of tripe, served with wilted leaves. Gilt back, a thick slice of back bacon dressed with gold leaf. Woodcut head and tail pieces, chunks of meat cut from the head and tail of an ox, each carved in the image of Anthony Wood. And turkey morocco, thin strips of turkey marinated in cannabis. After a few seconds of indecision, I ordered the turkey and a bottle of the house white, Blanc Verso, not to be confused with Blanc Verse, which is the house white of the Poetry Society. I asked the waitress to be sure to bring me to a bottle of Gruber's tomato ketchup, adding that it was the favoured source of learned men of every nation. She remarked that some bibliographers preferred shickles, which I thought a little cheeky, then scurried off to deliver my order to the kitchen. Then I took out my notes on the codex and began to peruse them. An idea had been playing round my magnificent mind for some while regarding those copies of the codex which had been printed upon cheese. Surely this was such a soft substrate, and yet such a greasy and resistant one, that any attempt to lay down ink through a stencil would be easily distinguished from an impression made with a relief surface by the indentations left, or not left, in the pecorino. The problem is, as you are no doubt aware, that all that survives of the cheese impression is one small fragment of a leaf in Budapest, while all the other fragments and a handful of more or less complete copies which once existed, according to library catalogues and other documents, have been devoured by mice, gerbils, weevils, hedgehogs, Buddhists, and in one famous case, the starving burgers of Hamburg, ironically in a hamburger, which thus became a cheeseburger, although they were not, of course, in the city of Cheeseburg, which lies on the Rhine rather than the Elbe, I was beginning to think I might have no choice but to visit Budapest, to examine that one fragment myself. In bibliographical research, one should never trust anyone but oneself, unless there is absolutely no alternative. As I thought on these weighty matters, I was distressed to note a shadow pass over my page of notes, and a more or less human figure loomed into view. It was Telemachus Wee, the deputy president of the Bibliographical Society, and now, I supposed, its acting president. He was a poor creature in comparison to the towering Oribrite. As he pulled out the chair opposite me and sat down with a conceited smile, I wondered for a moment if he might have engineered Ribright's death in order to get his posterior upon the Society's throne. He was, after all, the heir apparent. But that was absurd. You're still working on the Codex Asinorum, I see. How did you know that? I see you have written weevils, Buddhists, and cheese, cheese, cheese at the head of that page. No other work I know involves that conjunction of nouns. I see. And have you solved the mystery? I have. Splendid. And what's the answer? The answer, my friend, is bread and pullet. Uh, yes. Um, what terrible news about Ribright? Indeed. And so unlikely. Quite. 
If a man had died in the bed of a beautiful bibliographer, and his body had been dragged along the corridor by that bibliographer, and she had been caught in the act by another, albeit amateur bibliographer, in some television soap opera, perhaps set in a grand house, an abbey maybe, no one would have believed it. The critics and the viewers by their water coolers would all have cried, No, 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 this is just ridiculous. It passes the point of improbability. Such things simply do not happen in real life. And yet this is real life, we, and just this thing has happened. Hmm, this is not real life, you know. Really? No, we are not living. None of this is real, I assure you. We are merely players in a petty bibliographical farce. You may care to look at life in that way, but is that attitude appropriate for an acting president of the Bibliographical Society? I prefer to see life as real, as earnest, as empirical. I eschew all humour, all levity, all facetiousness, and all pseudo-philosophical, pseudo-spiritualistic and fatalistic drivel of the sort you have just been spouting. Life is real, matter is hard, and facts are facts, including the fact of Michael Ribright's curious death and its aftermath. Nothing has been invented here by some dreaming bibliographer. An acting president of the Bibliographical Society must understand this and not engage in whimsical flim-flam about the nature of reality. Perhaps you're right. I will try to keep my whimsy under control. That would be wise of you, Wee-Wee. My name is Telemarchus Wee, not Wee-Wee. Wee-Wee would be a very silly, childish name, but Wee has a long and noble heritage. It is Scottish, of course, like your own name, and means urine. McQueen, you're not thinking of standing for the presidency of the Bibliographical Society yourself, are you? At the age of 72, we, I feel I'm just a little too young to be president of the Bibliographical Society. Nonsense, McQueen. I'm only 63 myself. Yes, wee wee, but you're so much older than that. The fellow had annoyed me, rather, first by interrupting my luncheon and then with his idiotic maunderings. I called over the waitress and asked if I could have my turkey morocco and wine delivered to my room. She naturally agreed, and a few minutes later I was dining in delightful solitude. When I had completed the delicious meal, topped off with an extra squirt of Gruber's tomato ketchup straight into the McQueen mouth, I would recommend this sensory treat to anyone, I lay again upon the four-poster to listen to the, the ear trumpet of death, in the perhaps partly feigned expectation of being able to learn something of the true history of the mysterious Codex. However, even before I could raise the instrument to shoulder level, I fell into a deep and sweet sleep. Any further attempt to pursue my researches, or to dance with death in his curious auditory world, would have to wait for another occasion. Adventures of Donald McQueen Bibliographer Today's chapter was sponsored by the Bibliographical Society of London and by Gruber's Tomato Ketchup, the most delicious condiment on the planet. It was written and performed by Paul W. Nash. Next time in the Adventures of Donald McQueen Bibliographer
My name is Dr. Flip Mondowitz of Panacea University, Florida, and I have invented a new perfume, which I call... Butation. Some fragrances seem to promise to make you more attractive, more successful, more alluring to handsome men or handsome women, but all they can really do is make you smell. Butation is different. I have invented a perfume which actually modifies your genetic makeup, so that each day when you apply a spot of butation to your throat or wrist, you become a little more like one of the seven most beautiful women of all time. You can choose from Marilyn Monroe, Ingrid Bergman, Lisa Gerardini, La Gioconda, warning, actually a Puerto Rican cleaner, Grace Kelly, or, in order to tick all the boxes, Michelle Obama, Lucy Liu, or Pocahontas. Warning, none of the women named endorses this product or has willingly supplied their DNA. Imagine that. You can grow each day more beautiful, more like Marilyn or the Divine Ingrid. Men too can use butation if they wish to be more feminine or indeed to pursue gender reassignment. Available only from the house of Vincenzo Gobbo in New York. Butation. Isn't it time you butated? Warning. Regular use of butation can result in the development of extra limbs, humps, and horns.